towards the end of the first century, around 95 AD, John, one of Jesus' disciples, gets a message that he is meant to record uh, from Jesus. And that message is supposed to be delivered to seven literal churches around the area. And so our series right now is called Seven Churches in Revelation, the book of Revelation. Jesus has some specific things to say to these churches, and and we'll continue that this week. Uh, But before we get there, every January, our few student ministry, we go to Kalahari Retreat. And uh, as most of you, if you haven't been there, you probably know, uh, one of the biggest indoor water parks in the world. And when we go, one of my favorite things to do in the water park is the Lazy River, all right? I know that's uh, not the most exciting thing, but it's probably the only thing in there that doesn't have a line, so I'm all for it. And uh, when you step to the Lazy River, you can't just swim wherever you want to, right? Like there's a, there's a way it works. You, you grab your raft, you hop in, and the direction or the current of the water takes you one way with everybody else. That's kind of how it works, and it takes you clockwise around a portion of the park. Now, uh, how, how easy is it to go with the current of the water with everyone else? Like, it's, it's easy, right? You don't do anything. You put your feet up, sit on the raft, and it takes you that way. Even if you're saying, I want to go that way, it's going to take you, you know, left along with everybody else. And that is unless you were to make an effort. If you say, no, I'm not going to go with everybody else, I'm going to stay right here or even go the other direction, that would involve you holding on to something steady, right, holding on, and so you would essentially have to counter the current of the water and everybody else, and if you were to do that, one, you'd probably be a nuisance to everyone else in the river because they're trying to get around you and you're clogging it up, but you would immediately stand out because you're no longer doing what everyone else is doing. You're right there. You would be different. Jesus in the message that he has for the church today and and for us as a church today, he wants to make the point that as a Christian, as a believer, we should be different. That just as it's easy, it really doesn't take any effort, it's easy to follow the current of a lazy river, it's even easier to follow the current of culture, to do what everyone else is doing, to, to be with and to look like everybody else. But Christians, we should make an intentional effort to hold on to Jesus and be unlike the world. And we do that in our speech, with our actions, with our faith, so many different ways. Because we believe something different, we should look different. And no one needed to be reminded of this truth more than the church in the city of Pergamum. And Pergamum, if we have it here on the map that we've been looking at every week, uh, we started, these are the seven churches that Jesus is writing to, or speaking to. We started with Ephesus and then Smyrna, and last week we went out of order just a little bit, and Zach talked about Thyatira, but now we are in the northernmost city of Pergamum out of the seven, and this is probably the most famous city out of all of them. At one point, it was the, uh, the capital of the Roman province of Asia, and today it's no longer Pergamum, but it survives as Bergama. Turkey. And we'll talk a little bit more background in a second, but for right now, let's get into the passage and see what Jesus had to say to them that has immense value for us today. Chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 12. Are we ready? 
Love it. Verse 12, here we go. Write to the angel or the messenger or leader of the church in Pergamum. Thus says the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So when Jesus is speaking to all these seven churches, he introduces himself slightly different every time. And here, it says that he has a sharp, double-edged sword. Like we mentioned last week, this is not the gentle Jesus that we often have in our mind. That it says that he's holding a sharp, double-edged sword, and whenever Scripture speaks of this sword, it's referring to Scripture, the Word of God, the Bible. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12, one of the most famous verses about the Bible, says that Scripture is living, it's active, that anything it touches, it's effective, that it's able to judge our motives. And Jesus here presents himself as judge and authority using his word. And here's why it's important, especially it's, it's kind of cool when we know a little bit of history, of Pergamum and even the area, the surrounding cities, the Roman governor of that area would have been given uh, would have been given what was called the right of the sword, the right of the sword. And for that governor, that meant that he had the ability and the jurisdiction, he could bring about capital punishment among any offender. Like he had the ability to do that. And not only that, but to symbolize his power, he would carry around a literal double-edged sword. And not only as a symbol, but he would use it. If he needed to get the job done, he could, you know, he could use that if need be. And so when Jesus is saying these words, the people at Pergamum know, or they're thinking, okay, yeah, their governor has a double-edged sword. But Jesus is writing to show himself as the authority. Wait a minute, you thought that Rome, people of Pergamum, you thought that the governor or the, the, the government had the final say? No, that still remains with me, that Jesus has the final authority. And he doesn't have a literal sword. He is using, it says, a sharp double-edged sword, or the Bible refers to it as the sword of the Spirit, and he uses something much greater. And we'll come back to this a little later. But then Jesus commends the church for what they do well. Verse 13, it says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. Yet you are holding on, and remember that language, holding on, to my name, and did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, or martyr, who was put to death among you where Satan lives. Jesus describes their hometown as Satan's throne. Now, you know how every city has like a, a saying or a slogan, you know what I mean? Like, Fremont's is where people come first, something inviting, something that says, stay a while, we care about you. Imagine driving up to Pergamum and seeing Satan's throne welcomes you. It's like, eh, no thank you, you know. Doesn't sound too pleasant, but that's how he describes this city, where Satan dwells. And that's probably because, uh, just because of the sheer number of evil things that took place. And, uh, and, and so let's talk about the city of Pergamum. What environment were the believers in in this city? Uh, we have a photo. If you were to go there today, this is what you would find. That there was a lower portion of the city, kind of on the plains, but a lot of it was built on this hill, which is roughly, maybe even more, uh, roughly about 1,000 feet high. And it just looks impressive, doesn't it? I mean, it looks sweet. Even the city itself 
is almost like a throne kind of overlooking the land and the water around it. And we even have another photo of kind of this theater on the side of the hill that kind of gets you a, um, an angle of how steep the hill is, how tall it is, and you got it overlooking Bergama down low. Like, the city is impressive, but it's also a distinguished city in the sense of it was the center for worship. But not worship, but not for worshiping the one true God. It was the center for pagan worship. That you couldn't go anywhere. You couldn't walk 10 feet without running into a temple or an altar of some fake religion or God to, to sacrifice to. And if you remember Rome, they didn't have a problem with you worshiping. They said, hey, you can do whatever you want. Worship however many gods you, you know, go for it. But the problem came when Christians said, yeah, our God is the only true God. And that's where the tension arose. And this city of Pergamum, it had something for everybody. It was pretty much a buffet for religions, if you will. And so let's talk about some of the tensions that uh, the Christians faced in this city. This is a rendering of what the upper city probably looked like to some extent. So let's talk about some of these things that the Christians were tempted with. This is the first temple that was built uh, in the city of Pergamum. This is the temple to Athena. And a lot of us probably know Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and not just the goddess of like facts or knowledge, but her wisdom led to life. And she impacted the city. Not only would people worship her, but because of her, uh, Pergamum was home to the second largest library in the entire world. Over 200,000 books were in this library. And, and so because of that, the city was about education and learning and knowledge, and they pursued that as a part of worship to Athena. But not only would you have Athena, maybe you want to go down low, maybe you want to worship somebody else. You have here the temple of Dionysus. Dionysus was uh, the god of wine, the god of theater, uh, and the god of ecstasy. It was very, like, if you were here for a good time and not a long time, like you wanted to be on the party scene, this is where you would go. And uh, I'll, I'll spare you the details, but uh, so many things that was quote-unquote worship of this god involved sex and drinking and partying. Um, and, and not only that, but right next to it was the theater. That This was the steepest theater uh, in the uh, area of this time, that it sat 10,000 people. And so this is where, you know, not only would you worship Dionysus as God, but you'd go for a play. And in this play, you would be shown or encouraged to follow these worldly philosophies and ideas that were kind of um, presented to you. All in all, this religion or this, you know, fake God promoted the sinful things of Satan. But maybe it's not Dionysus, maybe it's not Athena. Maybe you want to take a trip off the mountain and go down low to the plains and you need healing. You need something more practical. So you want to go to the God of healing or the God of medicine, which was Asclepius. And the god Asclepius didn't have so much so a temple that you would just worship for the sake of worshiping. You could, but it was a healing center. That This was the most comprehensive hospital uh, probably in the world at this time. That it was like having the Cleveland Clinic in your backyard. That it was that big of a deal. People came from all over uh, to come to this spot. And they were very up to date with modern medicine and they had ways of healing people. 
But all of it was credited to this God. That if you were healed, oh, it, well, it was Asclepius. Praise him, worship him. And they even had some interesting ways of doing that. That one of the ways, because Asclepius was um, actually represented through snakes. And one of the ways that they would bring healing or try to bring healing was they would have the patient come into the chamber, the temple, the room, and they would give them a sedative and say, hey, sleep on the floor, stay here for the night, we'll close the door, we'll come back in the morning see how you're feeling. And while you're sleeping in that room, it would be covered or filled with non-poisonous snakes. And Yeah, right? And the idea is that, or the hope, is that one would slither over you or it would touch against you, and you'd be healed because those snakes held the power of Asclepius. And by your response, I'm guessing no one would want to go to this hospital, right? Doesn't, I mean, I could lose a hand. And it's like, no, it's not worth it. I'm fine. Thank you. Um, but think about how tough it would be to be a believer, that you have the, the best hospital in the world, you have the most advanced and knowledgeable doctors in the world in your city, but you're sick, your kids are sick, and to go there, to be treated, you have to give your allegiance to Asclepius. It's a tough spot to be in if you're a believer. But maybe it's not one of them. Maybe you don't want to deal with all the other gods. You want the man in charge. Like, okay, excuse me, can I please speak to a supervisor? Who would that be? That would be Zeus. And this is the altar of Zeus right here. That uh, it's even built you know, kind of like a horseshoe manner, but it's almost like a seat or a throne itself, kind of how it's, how it's structured. And maybe you're looking at all this going, okay, well, this is cute, but uh, how do we know this is maybe what the city looked like or even the altar of Zeus? Did it actually look like that? Here's a photo of what it looks like today, that this is the altar of Zeus. That's in the early 1900s, uh, somebody, I don't remember his name, but somebody unearthed it, moved it to Berlin, Germany, and here it sits today, at least the front part of it, uh, in the Pergamum Museum. And you can see it. I mean, even the architecture, like for 2,000 years ago, uh, somebody had some talent. This is impressive as well. It's about 120 feet wide, four stories high, and uh, even the kind of side parts, the sculptures there, depicts the god gods versus the titans. And it's meant to show that Zeus is the god of god, king of kings. No one has more power than he does. And I think Jesus would have something to say about that. But even with all these gods, maybe it's not any of them. Maybe you want to do what's more popular uh, and participate in emperor worship. And here we have a photo sorry, not a photo, a drawing uh, of what it may have looked like when the city you know, had people in it. And here, obviously, we have the temple of Dionysus there we talked about. Here's the temple of Athena. And right here is the temple for emperor worship on the highest part of the city. That this was kind of a unifying factor for Rome that even two weeks ago, we talked about the city of Smyrna, how it was uh, popular for them to give a sacrifice to the emperor, because they thought he's more than a man. He's divine. He is, you know, part God, and so they'd worship him. Uh, but not only once a year, emperor worship started in Pergamum. 
And so it was probably a bigger deal here than anywhere else. And if you were to say no to all these gods, it would be a difficult place to be a believer where the entire city doesn't just, uh, they're against God, all of it. That doesn't matter where you went, they were teaching wrong things that led, that strayed you away from God. And this is the context of the Pergamum church. This is where they live. This is what Jesus would call Satan's throne. That the Bible says Satan has real power and real influence in this world. And 2,000 years ago, when Jesus is speaking this message to John, Pergamum seems to be the center of it. And so he goes out of his way to say, this is where Satan dwells. So, and, and this is an understatement, but the believers are in enemy territory. Where everything's against God, it is a tough place to be a Christian. Yet, verse 13 says, yet you are holding on to my name. This church is in a difficult environment, but they are holding on to Jesus. That they are not straying away, they are not denying their faith, they are not afraid to worship the one true God, and they're, they're bold about it. And their dedication, their commitment, was personified by a guy named Antipas, who we read in verse 13 as well. Antipas is only mentioned in Scripture in this verse. So we don't know much about him. Maybe he was a pastor of Pergamum. Maybe he was a leader in the church. Uh, we don't know, but what we do know is that he held on to the name of Jesus. And he was willing to give up his life for the gospel. And history tells us uh, that he was roasted to death in a, inside of a brass bowl, that there was a bowl used for offering to these, you know, again, fake gods and for these sacrifices, and there was a fire underneath it. They placed him inside, they heated it up, and he slowly baked to death. All that because he held on to the name of Jesus. And this is the kind of stuff that was going on in Pergamum. This level of persecution, and it was a, probably it was a public event, Maybe because he didn't want to worship the emperor, he said, no, not going to do that, and, and they killed him. But this gave the church an example, and it didn't scare them. It motivated them because Jesus commends them. He applauds them for holding fast, being committed to his name and the gospel. And although that's true, Jesus, he had more to say, and we see that in verse 14 and 15. It says, but, like you're doing great in that area, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and it wasn't the whole church, but Jesus says some of you there uh, are holding on to false teaching, which impacts the way you live. And he mentioned two groups, the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, as we, uh, we don't know everything about this group, and Jesus doesn't mention specifically what it is he dislikes about them, but basically what they believed is that, okay, you are a Christian, 
You've been forgiven. You've been saved. Cool. Your sin's forgiven. You can live however you want. Like you got your get out of hell free card. You got Jesus. So your sin doesn't matter. Just live how you want. And obviously it's not how it works. But it relates to the teaching of Balaam. And Balaam is a person that we meet, that we read about in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers. Specifically chapters 22 uh, to 25, we read about this story. But Balaam is an interesting guy that this is around the time that Israel is wandering in the wilderness. They've left Egypt. They're no longer in slavery. God freed them from the Egyptians, split a Red Sea, and now they're on their way to the promised land. But Balaam is a, uh, and I'll use this term lightly, he was a prophet that he spoke on behalf of God. And one of Israel's enemies, uh, they were the Moabites. And the king of Moab was named Balak. And Balak had heard about Israel. He knew how big they were and how successful they had been in taking over other enemies. He didn't want to be next. So he comes up with a plan, and he's like, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to reach out to this prophet Balaam guy and have him curse the Israelites. Then maybe they will, uh, you know, they'll lose some of their power, and I'll be able to take them over. And so that's what happens. Balak reaches out to Balaam and says, hey, will you do this? Balaam comes with them and tries three separate times to speak a curse against Israel on behalf of God. But every time he tries, God doesn't allow it. That instead of a curse, God brings blessings from his mouth. And he says only good things about Israel. And Balaam tells Balak, like, look, I don't know what you want me to do. I can't curse what God has blessed I tried to say this, but God made me say this. And uh, wouldn't that be nice for us, by the way? Like every time we try to say something mean, negative, just dumb, like God brings good things out of our mouth. Someone cuts us off in traffic. You want to say, what? I'll leave that to your imagination, whatever you want to say. But instead, you try and God brings forth, thank you for cutting me off. This is an opportunity to pray. You are loved by our Lord Jesus Christ. Like that'd be nice, right? Doesn't work like that for us, but it did for Balaam. And he says, look, I can't curse what God has blessed, but here's what you can do. Balak, if you want to take down Israelite, or the Israelites, make them look just like you. Make them conform to all the things that you do. Take your Moabite pagan women and send them to the camp. Have them tempt and seduce the men. They'll begin to sleep with those pagan women. Then they'll be following those pagan gods, forsaking their own god and following these other ones. They'll be more open to it. And with that, that's, as he presented this idea, that's what Balak did. And it says the plan worked for the most part. That was until God intervened and 24,000 people died who were participating in these things. And that allowed the internal corruption to stop so that the nation as a whole could get back on track. And that's the cheery story of Balaam. <laughs> but just like the Israelites were seduced by Balaam's false teaching, there were some in the Pergamum church who were tempted to do the same. They were tempted to mix their beliefs or their faith in God with the ways of the world. That instead of being distinct from culture, they were married to culture. 
and they believe that as long as you were a Christian, if you placed your faith in Jesus, you could live however you wanted to. Your life could look, it didn't matter what it looked like. You could uh, sleep with as many people as you wanted to. You can go to the pagan feasts and festival. You can look like everyone else and still follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, that is not how this works. We should faithfully follow him and him alone. The people in Pergamum, some of them, they claimed a belief that was very different from the world around them. But their lives looked very similar to the world around them. And so Jesus gives them the only solution. Verse 16. He says, so repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He says, repent. Repent means to change your mind, leading to a change in action. And so it's realizing that, okay, this is sinful, this doesn't honor God, I'm going to turn from it and turn towards him. He tells them to repent. And this matter is so serious that Jesus warns that he will come fight against them with the sword of his mouth. And it's severe, it sounds severe, because Jesus hates when this becomes true of his people that he wants to protect the purity of his church so much so that he's willing to cut out the toxicity so that his church as a whole can remain on mission. And that's because as believers, we are meant to showcase God to the world. And instead of influencing others, the church in Pergamum became influenced themselves. And we can repeat the same mistake today. That we too live in a place that is difficult to follow Jesus. I do not believe that America is Satan's throne. <laughs> but I do know that all of us are going to leave this room here this morning. And we're going to go back to homes and jobs and friendships and environments that don't make it easy for us to place Jesus in the center of our lives. And what often happens is I think we feel the temptation to not stand out, to not make waves, to do what everyone else is doing. And so instead of following our convictions, we just conform. And Jesus is reminding Pergamum as he is us today that we are not meant to live like the world. We are meant to be different because the gospel message is different, that we are sinful that I don't deserve anything good from God, I don't deserve forgiveness or grace, but I can only find eternal life and salvation by placing my faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That message, the gospel, that is available to every single person on this planet, that message is different, it's unique, and it should be desirable. And I think what we often also do is that we, we have a desire for others to know God, right? Like we want people to know how great he is. Okay, I'm following him, and man, he's, he's just so great, and I, I have this hope that outlasts this world. I want others to know him. And so as we try to reach our friends and our family and our coworkers, all, this, all these people, I think we try to reach culture by kind of looking like culture, that we don't want to look too weird or stand out too much like we want to be liked and respected by them, then maybe they'll kind of accept what we have to say. 
But the question I ask myself is, why would somebody want my message and my hope that I'm telling them they need if my life looks just like they do? That Jesus is writing, clearly saying that his ways are not like the world. And if we start living by the ways of the world, we're going to start looking like the world. And if we don't look any different from the world, then we have nothing to offer the world. Because anything found outside of Jesus is counterfeit. It's nothing. It leads to death. Our message is different. Through the gospel and only the gospel, we find true joy and hope and contentment and purpose. And we need to show that it's unique and show that it's different by the way we live. And we can't have it both ways. The church, that's what they tried to do. If you notice, it said they, um, they, they held on to the name of Jesus, but they held on to false teaching that changed the way they live. False teaching to believe that, hey, I can live however I want. And so they're kind of stuck playing tug of war in both camps, trying to have the best of both worlds. And I think sometimes we do the same, that we hold on to the name of Jesus, but we live just like the world. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm following Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I watch all the same movies as the world. I mean, it's funny, I know it's not clean, but, or maybe we run our finances just like the world, that instead of using it, stewarding our money for God's glory, it's about our comfort and how to make our life better. That we talk just like the world. We use our words to tear people down and discourage or we make the same jokes as the world, we have the same goals as the world. Then instead of, again, God's glory, it's about our future and how we can set ourselves up for success. That we have the same, uh, that we grieve just like the world. That we forget we don't have hope and we have eternal life. That we drink just like the world. That we kind of numb out our day and run to alcohol as much as possible. Or we have the same relationships that are wired just like the world. That they're filled with unforgiveness and bitterness and envy and, pass and passivity, and we do all these things just like the world, but don't worry, I'm a Christian. And Jesus says we shouldn't operate that way. That it's easy to do, but if we don't make an effort, we will look just like everyone else around us. And Jesus is saying that if you blend in with culture, it's cause for concern. And even, G and even John, in one of his other letters, writes about the same topic. First John 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. We're reminded that we need to let go of, thing, of, of living like the world and be fully committed to Jesus alone. Because John's saying, hey, we may be in the world, it's where we live, but we don't want to be like it. And Jesus ends this letter, this message to Pergamum with a promise. In verse 17, the last verse we'll read, it says, uh, one of the last verses we'll read, let anyone who has ears to hear, 
listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. So basically, if you're reading this, if you're hearing this, pay attention. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he's saying, hey, everybody listen up. To those of you who are conquerors, to the one who conquers, this is what I'll give you. And we've mentioned this already, but just to remind us, okay, who is someone who conquers? What is a conqueror? Is it a Christian that does above and beyond for Jesus? Not necessarily. John actually answers this in one of his other letters. 1 John chapter 5 says, Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So who is the one who conquers? Who is a conqueror? Christians. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and his work on the cross to pay for your sins, you are a conqueror. And notice that he doesn't say, hey, you got to earn your way to become that. Like, you're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from victory because Jesus has already done this in our life. And so he says, to those of you who conquer, those of you who are Christians, here's what I'll give you. And he mentions two things. One, he says, hidden manna. And manna if you remember, was also around the time of Balaam when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. God provided for them. God fed them uh, with this bread that fell from heaven and, and, and they would gather it most mornings of the week and it provided for them for, for years. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus is telling the people, hey, your ancestors ate from the hand of God. God provided them for them with manna. But I am the bread of life that I provide and sustain in a greater and more fulfilling way than simple bread can do. And so when Jesus says, I'll give you hidden manna, we get Jesus, the bread of life for eternity, which there really is no better thing to be given or receive or have access to than Jesus himself. And not only hidden manna, but he says uh, in verse 17, I'll give you a white stone with a new name. A white stone with a new name. And here, uh, there's a, a few views on what this could mean, but it most likely refers to the kind of Roman tradition of rewarding a victor of an athletic competition. So they'd have a race, they'd wrestle, they'd fight. Whoever won that competition, uh, the victor, the conqueror, would be given a white stone with their name inscribed on it. And uh, this isn't just a trophy to be held above their fireplace. Like this was... Uh, almost an access pass, that after the competition, there'd be a, an after party, a celebration, and they would present that stone and say, hey, like, I have permission to go in. You know, they have access because they had this white stone with their name on it. And here at Grace, or at our Fremont campus, we have the same thing, like, to get in the building, we have, like, a fob system, and so each one of us have one of these white cards, and our name is associated to this. This is actually David Lee's. It's not mine. But, uh, but each of us have one of these. And so if we want access to the building, this is what we need. And they all are personalized so they can go on the computer and see, okay, who checked in at 8? That was Michael. You know, 801, that was David. And so on and so forth. But if I want access to the building, I need this white card that has my name connected to it. Jesus 
is saying, I'll give you this white stone with a new name. And what he's promising is he's promising believers access to eternal victory in heaven. And that stone, it says that there was a name, a new name inscribed on it. And so I don't know if you like your name or you don't like your name, but as believers, it seems that we're getting a new one in eternity. And only you and God know that name. And that him giving a new name, it symbolizes care and shows um, his adoption for his children as we are welcomed into eternity. But as Christians in Pergamum, they may have missed out on some of the parties. They didn't have access to all the feasts and things that maybe they would have liked to have gone to. But Jesus says, don't worry, you haven't missed anything. That they'll have access to the best celebration as we worship Jesus forever because we are accepted by him. And so this message to Pergamum, to kind of summarize it, he's saying, look, we don't want to live to conform, we live to conquer. That we are called to have a life that is obviously different and set apart from everyone else around us. And this is where I don't know what all of our lives look like, and so if you can do some self-inventory, like, in what ways in your life are you conforming to look like the world? What ways or what things in your life are you not showcasing the goodness of God to others? And that's something that you prayerfully just have to ask yourself and ask God. Because it's not easy, right? That's, we talked about it's easy to go with the current of culture. And some of you, maybe you're thinking, that's not, it's difficult. It's not easy to do. That you're maybe thinking, okay, well, I mean, I know the Bible says that we should be different, but I'm the only Christian in my family. I'm the only Christian in my job. I'm the only Christian in my marriage. And I'm supposed to be different? And it's exhausting. Like, I get pushed back. I get made fun of all the time. And I don't know what that's like. Some of you are in very difficult situations but that is exactly why I think God lets us know in verse 13, right off the bat, he lets this Pergamum church know who was in an extremely difficult environment. He says, I know where you're at. Like, I know where you live. I know what situations you're facing. I know the temptations that are coming your way. I'm aware and I care about your situation. Even when no one else knows, God says, I know what you're going through. And he's just saying, if you would hold on to my name, you can withstand anything. And Jesus, as he presents himself, if you remember, he, he's holding the double-edged sword, referring to scripture. And I think the best way to fight conformity, to not look like everyone else, to be unique and to be set apart, is to know God's word and follow it. That's why he mentions, hey, I have the double-edged sword. If you don't want to look like everyone else, just follow my word. And if you do that, and I promise you will stand out in your culture, in your world, in your society. And so this morning, kind of a question that um, maybe I want to offer to all of us is what if we commit to holding on to God's word at all costs? 
What if we commit to holding on and following God's word at all costs, knowing that yes, it will be tough. Yes, you will be misunderstood. And yes, you'll have to do it through prayer and with love and gentleness and joy when we're dealing with other people. But what if you being in that workplace, in that apartment complex, what if you being in that environment means that you're able to make an eternal difference when you hold on to Jesus and live out your faith? Because the best way to reach the world and the culture and the people around us is with our lives, show them how much greater Jesus actually is than anything else. And that happens when we place our faith in Jesus, when we fall in love with him and his word, and when we commit to obeying God's word at all costs. Let me, uh, let me pray for us this morning that we would be able to live lives that are different. God, we thank you for preserving your word for 2,000 years. You wrote to this church in Pergamum, and there's a lot of similarities that, that we need to face, and we need to realize that we too live in a difficult environment, God, but you are calling us to hold on to your name. I pray that we would live lives that resemble our faith in you, that we would have our actions and our speech and our faith and our purity, all these things, God, that they would just showcase our belief and our trust and our relationship with you. That we would look around and, and God see that it's probably not how we want to live. And I pray that we would hold on and we would know your word, we would commit to it at all costs. And knowing that even as we read Antipas, he gave his life. He was killed because he held on to your name. God, I pray that we would be willing to give up anything to follow you and help us make an impact wherever we're at, God, wherever we leave and go today or this week, that we would live lives that are unique and it causes people to question just where our faith is at and what our hope is in. And it's in your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.